Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The teenage brain is wired to take risks. What if we framed the challenges of the NOD intervention as helping them take risks, but having them be positive social risks? From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On the show today, the CD-ROM. What is it good for besides Microsoft and Carta, look it up kids, and free AOL accounts in 2004? Well, for one uniquely intrepid nonprofit founded by Pam Omidyar, the CD-ROM became the intervention that would change the lives of teens living with cancer for the better all around the world. Hope Lab is a social innovation lab committed to supporting and improving the health and happiness of young people. And joining me is Hope Lab CEO, my friend and advocacy partner in crime, Margaret Laws. What is behavior change tech? How can you gamify loneliness as a predictor of depression and suicide amongst college students, especially during a pandemic? How in the world does human-centered design intersect with young adult cancer patient advocacy? What happens when you harness the tools of empathy as a social connection vehicle to normalize identity and end the pity party? All that and oh so much more as we shed light on Hope Lab, one of the most impactful and influential organizations of our time, says me, that you may never have heard of, online at hopelab.org. Enjoy my conversation with the marvelous and spectacular Margaret Laws. Well, we are officially recording, and Margaret Laws, I am overwhelmingly overjoyed to have you join me on Out of Patience. Thank you so much for, my God, what a throwback retro show this is going to be. Well, thank you for having me, and it's just been incredibly exciting to see you get this new chapter of your life going, and I'm really excited today to talk to you about old times and current times and just share some stories about how we've worked together over the years and what both of us are up to now. I mean, again, for the listeners who are sort of just coming into the fray of what I talk about, they know that I've been doing radio for many, many years at, through the uh, the Stupid Cancer Show, but it's it never gets old to talk about what tech was in 2004, 5, and 6, and how we kind of like, you know, it was like the in the savannah when there was no industry. It was just like mm. we we're roaming free. Like, what is this freedom with cords and copper lines? And now we have what we have today. And it's it's so important to recognize where everything started from and how it evolved. And I'll just start with my first anecdote because I want you to talk about what Hope Lab is. 
I was introduced to Hope Lab through a CD-ROM. Look it up, kids. A CD-ROM. It's a plastic silver circle <laughs> with it. a donut hole. And it had a – and you put it in computers. Like a thing popped out of a computer. It looked like a coffee cup holder. Don't put a coffee cup in there. And you put it in and it launched this program. And it was like Doom. I'm going to channel my inner Gen Xer. It was Doom a multiplayer role game in 3D where you're, instead of killing orcs and beasts and monsters, you're killing cancer cells. I'm like, this is so cool. Why didn't this exist when I was sick? Because that was like ColecoVision days. Anyway, I digress. Hope Lab is an astonishing example of everything done right, whether by accident or not. And I'd love you to just talk all about how it is that you do what you do and A, that you're in, in, it's amazing you're still here. <laughs> well, thank you. And I do want to go back to the historical note is a really fantastic place to start because, you know, as we, you and I were chatting a little bit before we started talking today, you know, we're in this moment now where technology, we were just talking about the technology for recording these podcasts and the technology that we live with every day, and particularly that teens and young adults live with every day, is just a foregone conclusion. When we think back to the early days of Hope Lab and the early, the Hope Lab's first product, which was a video game called Remission, what you were just referring to, you know, it was the days of CD-ROMs. And it was really because of Pam Omidyar, our founder. Pam uh, is the wife of eBay founder Pierre Omidyar. Pam started Hope Lab because she was a gamer. And she really thought it would be amazing to see how games, video games, could help young people do the things they needed to do, in this case, young people with cancer, to get as healthy as possible and, and stay healthy. And so it was really Pam's inspiration that got Hope Lab, which was thinking about technology, to be thinking about what was cutting edge technology at that time. To your point, it was, it was games. And so what we've tried to do at Hope Lab ever since then, ever since sort of our genesis story of creating a video game for kids with cancer, Remission, is be really, really aware of how young people are using technology, the role that it's playing in their everyday lives, and how might we enlist that technology to help cultivate, um, drive healthy behaviors. So at Hope Lab, we now work on a number of different issues. We work with high-risk young moms. We still work with teens and young adults with cancer. We work with college students around loneliness, depression, anxiety, we're just starting to do work with LGBTQ young people, similarly around mental well-being. Um, we've got some work in the hopper on vaping. But what we try to do in every one of the projects we work on and every one of the challenges we take on is really understand uh, what kinds of health outcomes we want to have, what behaviors drive those outcomes, what the psychology is behind those behaviors, and how we might use technology in novel ways to act on that psychology and be those behaviors. So that's sort of the prescription that we use. Um, and we have a team at Hope Lab of behavioral scientists, psychologists, and others, of human-centered design experts who work really closely with young people and others in their lives to understand what they need, what they're looking for, how they relate to the challenges that they're facing. Um, and then product or project managers who really bring these things to life in the form of digital products. So it's, it's been a really exciting ride. And what I will say, it's always fun talking to you, Matthew, because 
the origin story of Hope Lab really is in cancer and in helping young people with cancer. And I think like Hope Lab pioneered at the time, the the CD-ROM work, you really pioneered getting young people with cancer online together, activated together in, in real life to talk about what it is that they need and where they saw opportunities to try to improve their care, to try to improve the the ways that they're they were managing their own cancer. I'm going to channel my inner Steve Jobs because you're in the Bay Area. And at the end of the day, he used to always believe that you don't give people what they want. You give them what they didn't know they needed. And one of the things that really still sticks out for the young adult cancer movement not that it was born of its own condition and and the def- definition of grassroots and cancer advocacy, but no one made any presumptions about what we should do or who should do things for us. It was really a self-determined community that built itself from scratch and came to bear with ideas. And Hope Lab, even back then today, you you stood apart. It was different. And no one was thinking about it from the perspective that you guys were as an organization institutionally. And this notion of, you know, no one ever puts human-centered design with cancer patient advocacy. Those those syllables never really were a bullia base that worked. And this was really about the people's engagement where they're already at. We're already gaming. We get video games. We understand, at least back then, what a CD-ROM was. Let's just see if it works this way instead of making assumptions that if we go top down, it's going to work. Yeah. No, I, and, and really that's sort of the mantra for us at Hope Lab. One of the things we, we strive to do in all the work we do is have young people engaged at every step of the process. So in the research process, obviously, in, in, you know, through human-centered design, in designing concepts and products, and then in the testing and one of the things that um, I'm really proud of the team, we had this conversation last week where, you know, we have a team of Gen Z, millennial, uh, even some boomers, and we'll do a lot of the work in the field, interview young people, have lots of conversations and develop concepts. And one of the most interesting things, and as I was saying, one of the things I was applauding the group for last week was sometimes we'll get those concepts in front of young people and they'll say, no way. That's not, you know, that's not flying. And we need to listen to that and really have a lot of reverence for what young people are telling us about the ways they do and don't want to engage and really try to be good at that nuance um, and at channeling what we learn from them into products and services. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. But I think the other piece that we strive really hard for is to have a culture of experimentation and of openness. And it's really you know, a joy for us to be in an experimentation culture with young people. Um, I think it's one of the things that you know, almost everybody at Hope Lab you know, finds most exciting about the work they do is that you know, you're really not working in a vacuum and delivering something and seeing whether people like it. You're engaging every step along the way, running experiments and, and really trying to find what can be a pretty elusive sweet spot of something that both delivers the health impact that we're trying to, to deliver, but is also exciting and engaging for young people. And, and really, to your point, kind of fits in the flow of their life. So that's a big part of what, what we try to do is to get to know 
what does the, we talk about workflow, what does the life flow of young people look like and how can we build and engineer and design things that really fit within that life flow and meet needs that they have? One, one more thing I'll say here is one of the really interesting insights that we had working with young people with cancer, and I know you can certainly attest to this, is that young people with cancer don't, didn't, and don't, I'm quite certain, um, want to be reminded of an identity of, I'm a kid with cancer. Amen. And so one of the really interesting, right? One of the really interesting things about designing with and for young people with cancer is that a lot of what you're designing around is is that. It's that identity and a way to help people see an identity post-cancer treatment, post whatever adversity is in front of them right now, as opposed to delivering them something that pities them or that that really cements in their mind the identity that they're they're sort of being treated as someone with a problem rather than being engaged as someone with ideas and preferences and things they're excited about in their life. If I'm going to channel a moment in time, because you brought up Pity Party, I'm going to go back to the original Livestrong Young Adult Cancer Alliance meeting, the first one in Austin in, I think it was the fall of 06. And Heidi Adams, shout out to Heidi Adams, founder of Planet Cancer, one of my earliest mentors and friends, said that we are not about the pity party. And it was the first time I'd ever heard it exclaimed that way. And it felt so good to know that you're part of a community that didn't want to feel judged, but was so aware of the fact that we didn't want to be judged amongst ourselves either. So you are spot on in the approach that you guys took from a tech perspective to normalize the identity when bad things happen to good people. I do want to make a point that it is all in the name, Hope Lab. And I was today years old when I realized that the Jay Giles band song, Centerfold, Centerfold <laughs> means it's just the center of the fold of the magazine. I'm 46 and I just put that together, right? Center fold. <laughs> you are Hope Lab. You're a laboratory for hope. Oh my God. That's so good. The branding. That's another thing. You know, I'm a branding nerd. And I, I for all of Livestrong's history, it had great branding. You guys have mm. consistently had stellar level branding, marketing, design, and messaging with everything you do. So whoever's been doing that for you, kudos to those people. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting. It, you know, I think that name um, which, you know, dates back to the very beginning of this work that was really started initially by Pam Omidyar, Pam Cato, and, and others at Hope Lab. And I do find it is powerful to be able to go out into the world with this name. And, and in some ways, you know, a big name to live up to. So one of the things I talk a lot about, and I try to instill this both with staff and in the work that we do is, you know, we really are stewards of of these resources and of the willingness to take risks and the generosity of the omidyars of our benefactors and of their really strong desire to see things done differently and done in ways that really bring the best of technology to these challenges and these problems and we're in a moment where you know goes without saying there's there's a lot of questions about 
you know, do we bring when we bring technology to the challenges, particularly facing young people, are we are we helping or harming? And so we think really, really hard about that. And I think take that challenge and that responsibility really seriously. So we've been thinking a lot about one of the projects that we're working on and we've been deeply involved in over the past couple of years has been around loneliness. Loneliness as a precursor to and predictor of depression, anxiety, and suicide among young people. And, you know, lots of people would say, I think many young people among them, that living online can be a very lonely way to live. And the pandemic has certainly created challenges for people in social connection. And so the challenge for us has been to really learn deeply about and listen deeply to people about social connection and to think about how we can actually use the tools of technology that are out there combined with the tools of behavioral science and the tools of empathy and listening to try to create ways to help people cultivate meaningful connection, even if they're studying at home because they can't be in school. And so this past year has been a really, really interesting challenge, I think, in many of our projects and programs to see, gosh, you know, technology is creating some situations that are challenging and and that some might argue keep people apart. But it's also during COVID been an incredible way to bring people together. The nurses and moms in our high-risk young mom nurse family partnership project, the college students who instead of going back to campus or even high school students were you know, working at home by themselves. It's just a really important, I think, an interesting challenge of our time to design technology in ways that cultivates connection and supports connection when it can feel like it may, may do the opposite. Back with our guest after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I want to pick up where we left off on something really important to me is that as an advocate and, you know, I come from marketing and advertising where we really care about the nice to have versus the needs to have versus does it work? And what I found most authentic 
atop everything Hope Lab stood for when I first got engaged with what you guys were doing all those years ago was you didn't just want to be a nice to have. Hey, here's a video game. Let's see if it works. You were, and I'm going to geek out with some jargon, evidence-based. What did that mean? You actually measured whether it mattered and how it mattered to improve X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I've always said make things suck less. You make things actually suck less with the products and programs that Hope Lab have put to market. Have you applied the same evidence-based science and data gathering around everything you're doing today based on the precedence of remission? We have. And um, it's actually, again, you know, we, we talked about designing in collaboration with young people uh, and experimentation as some of the, the really important sort of mantras of what Hope Lab is and does. And this is another one, being evidence-based and putting the things that we build through rigorous testing. In the two decades almost that Hope Lab has been around, the world has in healthcare and in sort of digital therapeutics has changed dramatically. So I would argue there are a lot more companies and a lot more people who are bringing testing and, and kind of a, a vision of is this evidence-based to the work that they're doing. But it's, it's remained something really, really key to who we are and what we do. So everything we work on or, or build at Hope Lab, we are putting through rigorous testing. And, and you know, you just said it, when you have to think about whether something works, it has to work in two really big fundamental ways. It has to achieve the impact on whatever psychological or behavioral or physiological health outcome we're attempting to address. So we want to see better scores or lower scores on the traditional validated tests for loneliness, depression, anxiety, things like the UCLA loneliness scale, the GAD7, the PHQ9. And we set up what we call impact pathways. So for every project we do, our team puts together a pathway that looks at the endpoint outcomes we're looking for. We're looking for reductions in depression. We're looking for improvements in self-efficacy. And then we sort of map out how we think this intervention will help do that. What principles is it putting to work? What evidence-based practices like cognitive behavioral therapy might it be using? And how does that map out to these endpoints? And then we do a study. And we look at the endpoints. We look at, did this reduce anxiety? Did this reduce depression? Did this reduce loneliness? Did this increases in self-efficacy? Um, and we do those you know, using traditional rigorous testing methodologies like randomized controlled trials. Um, often we do them in conjunction with others. We're actually about to have another one published. Um, by the time this comes out, it may be released. Um, and what we try to do is, is get these studies published in peer-reviewed journals. Um, and it's just a really, really important part of the scientific grounding and vision that Pam Omidyar initially had for Hope Lab, that we would be evidence-based and that would be, we would be grounded in science and hold ourselves to that rigor. You know, I would like claim to say that you are masters of the teen psychology behavior influence market words I just put together and made up that mean nothing because you actually help teens make better choices and decisions in their quality of life by leveraging. I'm going to keep going back to remission because it really was, it set the bar. It, it, there was nothing before it. So I'm especially curious. My, my twins are 10, if you can believe that. They're timestamped oh in the annals of stupid cancer's origin story. Yes. So I have pre-tweens or, or tween, whatever they're mm -hmm. called, you know, yeah. and I, I'm, as much as I want to go down Tween the list. adjacent. Oh, my God. Yes, exactly. 
brilliantly said. I'm taken aback by not just how many amazing things that people can learn, but on your website, hopelab.org, but talk vaping with your team. We're doing a lot of work on one of our other network shows called uh, Brave New Weed about vaping and its dangers. Mm. And what have you learned or can you share with us, if anything, have you learned from the the results of, of intervening with teenagers, and I love the word intervention at this point, around cancer and wellness and behavior with vaping? This is this is uh, fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, the um, actually really exciting work going on around vaping, and we're just launching another project. And my colleague, Danielle Ramo, you will have to bring on to your other show because Danielle is deeply, she's a clinical psychologist by training and is deeply expert in vaping and uh, substance use among teens. But I think the question that you asked is a really interesting one, which is what are the, what are the sort of through lines that we see in working with young people? And I think one of the most important ones I touched on earlier when we talked about cancer is identity. And so, you know, adolescence and young adulthood and, you know, kind of back to the age your kids are, but certainly what they're entering into is this incredibly important period for formation of identity. And of, and that's why obviously having cancer diagnosis during that period is such a challenging, among other reasons, is such a challenging thing. And I think that helping young people get to a sense of what their purpose is and what their identity is beyond what's going on in the moment, the adversity they're facing, and really being able to help them sort of envision an identity for themselves in the world beyond whatever challenge is going on immediately, beyond the questions about whether they need to vape or drink or use substances to fit in, beyond the adversity they may be faced with having a chronic condition as a teenager, young adult, or something like cancer, and that's, I think, an important piece of why the psychology is such an important part of what we do, is to deeply understand what is driving the kind of brain and behavior of, of this age group, and how do you actually use that in some ways, uh, sometimes you know, in ninja ways, to try to help them make some choices that will be better long-term choices. So one example that that came up that was interesting when we started thinking theoretically about our NOD product, which is our college student loneliness intervention, was that the teenage and young adult brain is, is wired to take risks. And so one of the things we often worry about is that teens are taking dangerous risks. So you're 10-year-olds are starting to move in, maybe they've already done it, starting to move into this phase where risk-taking is exciting. It's kind of what they're built to do. And so what we thought about was, what if we framed the challenges of the NOD intervention as helping them take risks, but having them be positive social risks? So what if you could actually use that natural risk-taking desire tendency of that age group and, and sort of use it for good and try to get them engaging in risks that may seem really scary, social interactions and, and you know, trying to meet new people, but that will uh, build resilience and really build a long-term foundation and set of skills and relationships that will buffer them through lots of the challenges that they're facing as teens and young adults and as they're trying to figure out who they're going to be in the world and, and make these choices, including choices around things like vaping. 
Right. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's a kind of a that that's one of the ways that that we sort of see the through line of why think about what wh- how do we engage the psychology as part of the as part of the intervention or solution. Yeah, I'm not quite terrified yet. I have a few more mm-hmm. months or years perhaps for that to start becoming reality for my wife and I as they sort of self-manage into the, you know, jumping off roofs and TikTok video nonsense that are planets says says the old gen xer with the cane get off my lawn at the end of the day what this is going to come down to is how do you protect them in a sense of allowing them to have that sense of risk and invincibility i mean for all i remember when i was 21 i think my utter my, my utter stupid invincibility was what kept me sane when they said I'd be dead in six months. It comes in handy right. many, many right, times. Right. You don't want to inhibit it, but you want to work with it. And I think it's just, again, like as, as a father, just you and me and, and the listeners, as a father with two 10-year-olds, knowing that vaping is a thing now and you know smoking isn't cool anymore, but now vaping is going to be cool and what do we do? Knowing that there's a program like this that you guys came up with that is a, a need, going back to how you – I love the, the jargon of impact pathways, right? You're just looking to see what problem we want to solve and how do we get there. And that's right. such a great way to think about it because, you know, you're, you're a patient advocate organization. You represent the interests of people trying to protect us from ourselves in certain cases. You know, I want, I want to wrap up. Because uh, I want to have, I want to do a separate show on Nod. I think it's going to be incredibly important oh, yeah. to focus on. That. I've done maybe as of this taping today, I think fifteen of my episodes are about COVID and loneliness and mental health and all the the insanity that's plaguing our planet. On top of the insanity that was plaguing our planet before COVID, but in in the time we have left, help me figure out and unpack this. The three words you used that are sticking in my head right now: tools of empathy. And Mm. that's a word that's getting a lot of play these days. It's long overdue. It shouldn't have to be this popular because it's been around a long time. But the word itself is so self-defined. It's how do you figure out where it belongs? And some people have it. Can it be taught? Can you learn it? How do you get influenced by it? And where does it play in the land of intervention? How did Nod show up in the thought process of developing and growing uh, hopeless. Yeah, great question. And really, it's been it's been a fascinating path that we've gone down. And we actually Nod came to life through a very um, long, kind of drawn out process called systems mapping. But but in a, at a simplistic level, we kind of stepped back and we asked the question: What accounts for the state of mental health and well being of young people in the U.S.? And we mapped out all sorts of forces, you know, from, you know, challenges about the future and climate change to what's happening in, you know, digital tech development to what's happening in communities and to the fabric of communities. And one of the things that was interesting was that um, throughout that map, and you can picture this visual of a map, you can see it on our website if you go to uh, hopelab.org, but throughout that map, loneliness and social connection as they think of social connection a little bit as the opposite of loneliness, although that's not a definitional uh, pairing, um, kept coming up. And so the question we asked ourselves, which was such a wonderful provocation at the time, was there isn't a validated intervention for loneliness yet. And yet loneliness is such an important predictor of all of these other downstream 
things that can happen that are not great from anxiety to depression to uh, suicide. And so what we did was stepped back and thought, well, because we're experimental and because we're a social innovation lab and because we don't have to deliver a product to market tomorrow that's going to start making money, how might we begin to work on this on this question of loneliness, on this loneliness as kind of a proximal a shorter term indicator of these other mental health challenges that we know young people and old people like us face. And so we began You just to called really us unpack- old people. <laughs> well, you're I'm older than you are, so we're not teens and young adults anymore. I don't think so. I, I try to slip on, under that wire, but usually doesn't work. Margaret um, Margaret, I see your census checkbox and I raise you mine. <laughs> yeah. So um it is. It was really interesting to think about social connection and what it was that could help people in this. Often, you know, it's very fraught. It's very stigmatized. There's a lot of stigma around being lonely, and yet it's such a it's such a common and deeply felt emotion. And so, this notion of empathy. Uh, you know, one of the things we learned from studies that we'd sponsored from Sonia Lubomirsky and others was around how doing good for others um, really is a key to feeling better yourself. So that that you're that, that doing something good for yourself and doing something good for kind of one other person, kind of a known other person are very different in terms of the value you get from them. And that this notion of empathy and of connection and of doing helping yourself while doing good for others became a really important piece of uh, how we thought about this intervention. So giving people the opportunity to connect with others by doing acts of kindness for them or by by just reaching out, um, as opposed to sort of approaching it from a victim perspective. I'm lonely and no one's going to come to me. How might we encourage them to do this kind of outreach which we know can be buffering and helpful um, from a social connection and a loneliness perspective, but it takes some activation. It takes it takes getting a person who often is in a position of, you know, something between fear and and just inertia, and helping activate them so that they actually go out and start doing some of the things that will help them feel better about themselves and where they are. And, and interestingly, you know. In the intervention Vivabot that we created for young people recovering from cancer treatment, um, we used principles of positive psychology, and we there's a there was a lot in that application as well, or that intervention that really drew on this sense of how you can gain power for yourself by helping others. On this cliffhanger episode of Out of Patience <laughs> with Margaret Laws, I do want to thank you because I think, yes, we're going to promise our listeners here on the air with this live edit of my show, yes. I want to come back and focus on... We'll focus on empathy, on nod, on... Loneliness. How, how we got to loneliness. Yeah. And, yeah, and what we, hope, um, what we hope our contribution can be to really helping and this loneliness epidemic, or this at least profusion of loneliness that I think the situation under COVID has really exacerbated for folks. So, you know, to to the point you made at the very beginning of the episode, all of the things that we're working on, mental well-being of young people, loneliness, uh, vaping, you know, helping young moms and their babies just feel more purposeful, 
in these moments than ever. Um, and I just, you know, I feel really grateful to be, you know, to be able to work on these things and to have Hope Lab be a place where that can happen. So I'm super excited to continue the conversation and really appreciate you having me on today to talk a little bit about what we're doing. Margaret Laws, CEO at Hope Lab. Thank you so much. To be continued. Thank you, Matthew. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader